preparing an artistic representation of our, of our messages. Uh, and looking around, uh, I'm sure some of these images bring to mind some of those stories, uh, or they may even speak fresh to you. And so my poor wife had the unenviable task of having to figure out what I was going to talk about today. Um, and so uh, she couldn't do just one, she has to do three, because... I'm going to be all over the place, and I apologize for that. Uh, so I originally had thought about speaking on the life of Paul. And so I was on my morning drive into work listening to each of the epistles that Paul wrote to all the different churches. And I thought, you know what, I can assemble an autobiography of Paul from his own words. And if you ever read the epistles and think about it, there's a lot of I and we in there. So basically everything he does is very, very personal, uh, and that's because of how he received the Word of God. And at the same time, uh, me and a small group, our Connect group, have been going through the book of James. Uh, and I personally had never put the two characters together, uh, and I realized while listening to all of the epistles and, and the, the account and acts of Paul's uh, conversion in life, that their lives were intimately intertwined and they didn't even know each other for like 36 years. And then suddenly their lives crash into each other. And if anyone's gone through Oaks of Righteousness, one of the key points we talk about there is that God can redeem your history and he can redeem you. Those moments in your past that are traumatic uh, and formative can be redeemed and renewed and used by God for your benefit and for the benefit of others. Uh, and so that was kind of where my thoughts came. And so I was trying to find out where is it that these guys' lives first intersected. And so there are two scriptures uh, one from Acts and, and one from James, and I thought they did a good job, uh, and it's what put it together in my mind for the first time. And so in Acts chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, it's talking about the initiation of Paul's assault on the, on the new church. And in verse 3 it says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And the effect of this, of this was that people began to leave Jerusalem. And so verse 4, it says, And those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Paul was trying to stamp out this young Christianity. And what he ended up doing was spreading it. And so now you have these young Christians throughout this part of the world. And they're lacking leadership. And that, felt, that hit James. And so he wrote his letter 
It is the first, most likely the first book of the New Testament written was the letter of James to these Jews who had left Jerusalem and were clinging to the teachings of Christ. And it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And if you know James, what comes next is, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He knew it was coming. He knew that Paul and people like him were assaulting the church. And so he wanted to prepare them. Let's pray. Father, we bring this time to you. We come to you in your word and we ask you to teach us. These men helped us understand what our faith is supposed to be. Help us to understand them and understand your word better today. May we pray. Amen. So what I found is that these two guys kind of unintentionally kicked off the spread of the gospel out of Jerusalem and out of Israel. And that's an important part because it's what took a small faith. Uh, the body that was gathered in Jerusalem was between 120 and 200 people, not a whole lot bigger than this group here. And it changed the world. And I was hearing someone on NPR this week, or not NPR, on, uh, I think it was on Caleb, rather, and they were talking about the reality of Christ. And they said, you can look at any other category of information and you can find the life of Christ. Study the history of architecture and you'll find Christ. The history of art, you'll find Christ. The history of song, you will find Christ. And he's in literature beyond the Bible. And there, it is easy, he actually said this, if you looked at the fathers of what we consider modern science, the people in, in, around Newton's era and Ben Franklin, and you just took their writings, you would find Christ. And all of that sprung from this small body of believers who were willing to be changed by the word of Christ. And a unique element of the book of James is that he quotes Christ more than anyone else per capita, for the number of words he speaks. More of his words are based on Christ's words than anyone else. That's because it's all he knew. He wasn't a trained scribe or a Pharisee or someone like this who had this deep knowledge of Scripture. What he knew was Christ. And so what he spoke was Christ. And so I want to weave a story of these two lives. And so there are a few elements of a good story. Uh, first, the characters, then the setting, then the conflict, and the plot, and the resolution. And so we'll, we'll go through these elements, and hopefully I can weave a good story for you. Uh, and this, by the way, I will tell you, this is part one. Uh, we'll, we'll get through about half of it today, uh, and hopefully you guys can all come back uh, next week, and we'll, we'll, we'll get the, uh, the, the tail end of the story. Um, the first character is someone that we all know. We all know the Apostle Paul, right? And we know him as the Apostle Paul because every one of his books starts off with, I, Paul, an Apostle of Christ. 
He wanted to make sure everyone got that. Because if you look at how you define what an apostle was, the leading thought was different than what Paul was going to use it to represent. When the 11 remaining disciples sought to replace Judas, they set down a criteria. They said, we want someone who's been with us from the beginning and someone who knows Christ's teachings. Makes sense. And so there were two guys that fit that category, uh, fit those, those criteria rather, and so they chose one of those two, a guy named Matthias. And so he is the 13th disciple. And Paul has a different definition of apostle. And it is someone whose teaching comes from Christ directly. And he goes out of his way time and again to remind his, his readers, people he is caring for deeply in these letters, that this comes from Christ. And when he says things that he thinks come from him, he is sure to note that and, and almost apologize for it. Uh, but the, the character of Saul, or who becomes known as Paul, is introduced in Acts 7, but he, it's a very quick uh, development of his story. He goes from a bystander to being this person who is actively hunting members of the, of the church door to door, and then he decides that that's not enough. And so we'll pick it up in Acts 9. And you guys see how this kicks off. It says, Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked for letters from the synagogues in Damascus so that uh, if he found any there that belonged to the way, uh, which is before we were called Christians, we were followers of the way, which I think is a great way to say it. it says, Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. It kicks off strong words. Breathing out murderous threats. And he didn't do this because he was an evil person. He did this because he was a devout person. But he was the devout person of a tradition that had been completed and he didn't know it. And so Christ decides that he needs to know it. So in verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so this marks the change in Saul's life. And that past... Uh, it's about three years he spent as an active persecutor of the way. God's going to find a way to redeem it. And he already has because those peoples that he scared out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, were already spreading the word. And now he's gonna, God's going to even do more with it. So the second character we'll introduce is a little bit lesser known. Uh, I think everyone knows that James is a book of the Bible. But did you know that there are more than one James in the New Testament? There are actually three. And as Rusty would tell you, James isn't even really their name. Rusty, what's their name supposed to be? Jacob. Yaakov. And um, the King James Bible decided that James was a better name than Jacob. I don't know where he got that idea. Um, 
he wanted his Bible, his name to be in the Bible. So he said, let's just take that name and make it my name. Um, and so there are three Jameses. Uh, James, the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Zebedee. These are both early apostles. And then the third is James, the brother of Christ. Um, and so there are a few things we know about him. Uh, he is listed. Who knew that Jesus had a brother? Okay. Who knew that Jesus had a bunch of brothers? All right. So he actually has four. <clears throat> and he has at least a couple of uh, sisters. So Christ was one of at least seven kids. <clears throat> so he'd have fit in really well in the rainy house. Um, so, but, so the first time we hear about, about, uh, about James, the brother of Christ, is in Mark 6. And this is a passage that says, that talks about that... Uh, a prophet does, does not receive respect in his own home, in his own hometown. Uh, and this is people who look at Christ and go, wait, wait, wait. We know this guy. And so Mark 6, 3, it says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they, were, they would accept a great teacher if they didn't know him. But they'd seen Jesus grow up, and so for some reason, they were not willing to accept his word. And then there's John 7. And this goes a little bit to explaining the character of James. In James 7, 1, Christ says, I don't want to go to Galilee. I don't want to, to go to Judea because they're trying to kill me there. And in verses Two to four, his brothers say, you know what would be a really good idea? You should go to, you should go to Judea, Judea because if you want to be a public person, they need to know who you are. They need to see your miracles. And it says in verse five, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. They were essentially trying to get him arrested or killed. Later in the story, you're going to hear when James has the ability, the time to accept Paul. And I think it is this moment that he might remember when he was willing to sacrifice his brother that allows him to have a heart for Paul who actually did kill people. So we know a couple more things about James. In 1 Corinthians, Paul records that James had a special visitation from Christ. After the resurrection, Paul is listing off all the people who had seen Christ. And in a court of law, you had to have a certain number of witnesses to an event. Uh, three was usually enough. But uh, Christ went over and above. He had uh, over 500 people who had seen him after the resurrection. And in that list, in, in 1 Corinthians 15... Uh, it lists, James says, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. So it was 500 people and, and, and Peter and, and, and then James and, and then the apostles. And then Paul, just because he is the apostle of Christ, so it's at the end, and then me. So um, reading this story was actually quite entertaining to me. I don't know, hopefully I'm, you guys can get a little bit of that. I realize that my history teacher is coming out, and I apologize because uh, I'm kind of a, I'm geeking out a little bit on, on the history of all this. So the last thing we know uh, about James is that he was a pillar of the early church. Uh, in Galatians 2, 
Paul is, has gone back to the church and is kind of seeking their approval. And uh, it says, James and Cephas and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. And so this is what we know about James. He had this very dramatic change. Can you imagine growing up with someone who eventually became great? What if your sibling were a president or a senator or a Supreme Court justice, something unusual and lofty? Sometimes you probably got along and sometimes you probably didn't. And I think that James and Jesus probably didn't get along very much. And I'm sure it wasn't Jesus' fault. (laughs) But Christ also knew that by appearing to James after the resurrection, here could be this dramatic change in his life. And it was worth it. And so what I wanted to talk to you about is that God can and will redeem anything and anyone. It would not have been hard for Jesus just to say, all right, my family don't understand. So we're going to just move on. There are a lot of people who do. A lot of people who do want to hear the story of Christ, want to understand all of the prophecies that have come true want to see in everywhere from the, from the writings of Moses through Isaiah and Jeremiah, all of those who are looking forward to a Messiah, and here he is. There are lots of those people. But it was worth it to get just one, and that was James. And he's able to redeem Paul. It's one thing to have someone who was a denier, Right? He was so close to Christ, he couldn't see his perfection. But then you have Paul, the opposite end of the story, who in this misguided belief is attacking the church. And God can redeem both. And I guarantee you, whatever the worst thing that you've ever done is, it probably pales in comparison to going door to door and dragging people out to have them arrested and murdered. And it probably pales in comparison to trying to set your brother up to maybe get arrested or killed. And so what I wanted to remind us all is that wherever we start, God wants to use us. And he can use even the hard times of our lives for his glory. All right, so we've gotten our main characters. Uh, We got Paul, the evil persecutor, and we have James, this pillar of the church. And so we need to establish our setting, right? And so the setting, obviously, is going to be that early church in Jerusalem, that first gathering And then it's going to be that road to Damascus and then the believers in Damascus. So that's where all of this is taking place. I found it very interesting when I was looking for a lot of similarities between James and Paul. They were born about the same time, three to five years younger than Jesus. And they died around the same time, 
in the 60s AD, between 62 and 65 AD, their lives had a lot of parallels. And so I had a whole message talking about just the things they had in common. And that kind of got put back. <laughs> I went through a few versions of this, if you hadn't guessed. Um, and so what we need now is the conflict. And this is where the story of Stephen, the first martyr, comes in. So the apostles had this body of believers, 120, growing to about 200 people. And over those first three years after Christ, they're very, they stay very close together. They provide for each other's needs. If someone had a spare piece of land and someone had a need, they'd sell it, give to the church and say, please take care of this need. And that was very common. And it got to the point where people were starting to say to the apostles, you're not doing a very good job of this. You prefer this group and you don't prefer this group. And they said, you know what? We need to get out of the charity business. We need to find people who this is their goal in life. Right? We need to be about spreading the word. We need to be traveling to the temples and to the synagogues and meeting with people, reading the scripture and informing them how that scripture connects with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they said to the body of believers, this is probably the body that James was attending. This is where it would have been his friends. They said, you need to pick seven people and you bring them to us. And if everything is good, then we will commission them as, they didn't actually use the term deacon, but what we now call deacons of the first church. And they will care for the widows and the poor and all of these things that are important, but are not necessarily spreading the gospel. And so... In Acts 6, goes, brothers and sisters, to seven from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Necromen and Timon and Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a, a, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. I said, all right, now we have this group here and they're in charge of the charity of the, of the, of the, of the first church. We don't know a whole lot about most of these characters. Uh, we do know a little bit about Philip. Uh, Philip had a tremendous ministry. Uh, and then of course we know a good bit about Stephen. The interesting thing about Stephen is I think he exceeded their original expectation. They want someone who was going to take care of the poor. Well, he begins to minister in such strong ways. In Acts 6, 8, it starts, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people, and opposition arose. Surprising, right? Someone out there doing God's work, an opposition arises. It says, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They're trying to shut him up, but they can't because he's too good. <laughs> I wish that were my problem, right? Um, and so they decide that they're going to take him to trial. They're going to have a false accusation that he blasphemes 
God and, and the, the ministry of Moses and Abraham and all these things. And so um, they take him to trial. And if you ever get bored, you should read how that trial goes in Acts 7. It is a great story. He calls them out. And he doesn't just do it by being mean. He does it by being shrewd. He decides, they said, you're, you're going to say, I'm blaspheming the history of, our, of, of, of God's people. I will tell you the history of God's people. And he starts at the beginning and works his way down through it. And he, the point he gets to at the end, is he says, look, how many of these prophets were persecuted by the people of God, by God's people? All of them. And then there is Christ and you put him to death too. And the group was so enraged because he had taken his time and done this step by step and just absolutely just lays into them with, with precision of word and thought and said they couldn't handle it. They literally covered their ears and ran at him. And at 57 it picks up, they all rushed him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, the story of Stephen goes on, and it talks about that he had a moment like Christ where he looks up into heaven, and he sees God there, and he says, do not count this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. And this moment is when the persecution of that young church, the believers of the way, began. And for the first time now, I think we're going to see where the stories of James and Paul begin to intersect. As Paul begins to attack the church mercilessly, and James is trying to protect his friends and fellow believers, and as people began to leave, he's not sure what to do for them. He says, you know what? Let me give you God's words. Let me give you the words I heard Christ say. And so that's the epistle of James. And I think as families and small groups were leaving Jerusalem and Judea, he would say, please, take this with you. It's all I have. It's the story I know. And it keeps getting worse and worse to the point where the only people left in Jerusalem were essentially the apostles. And they have opened their understanding of that term and they've invited James now into that grouping uh, as one of the pillars of the early church. So at the end of seven, we have the first mention of Saul, the guy we know as Paul the apostle. And it picks up quickly from there. He goes in verse 8, 1 uh, of the Acts, it says that Paul approved of their killing him. And on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Samaria. And in verse 8, we already mentioned this, it says Paul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, and he dragged off men. And what I should have kept in that was verse 4. And it says that those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. Once again, reminding us that God can even redeem this persecution. 
this fear, these people running for their lives. And while that's happening, God's already redeeming it. It reminded me a lot of the story of Joseph. What his brothers meant for evil, selling him into slavery and telling his father that he was dead, God meant for good. And James, as he's sending out this letter with the people, he, he knows they're going to be tried. They're going to be tested. When they go into the, the synagogue and someone is up there reading from Isaiah and they say, you know what? I know who that is written about. And they're going to be shouted down. And eventually someone like Paul is going to leave Jerusalem and track them down and bring them back. And so James needs to prepare them for what's going to happen. And so after his greeting in, in verse 1, in, uh, it moves on in verse 2 of James 1. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its good work in you to be mature and complete, lacking nothing. He was hoping to bolster their faith. Look, it's going to be hard out there. I know it is. But if you rely on the word of Christ and you realize that this is the Messiah that we've been waiting for for thousands of years, it all works out. And as we've been studying the book of James, and we've been trying to put it in the context of these first century Christians, living in a world where some would have fallen away and some would have stayed strong, and some may have reacted like Peter when someone says, wait, didn't you know Christ? Aren't you a follower of the way? I've seen you gather with those people. You are one of those, aren't you? And some of them had to have said, no, I'm not. And others would have said, yes, I am. Let me tell you about him. And so that was James' heart. He goes, I know, I know it's going to be hard out there. And I need you to be strong. I need your faith to persevere. Because when it does, and as you see God work around you, you will see amazing things. An unusual element that it talks about in that time of Stephen was a number of priests who began to believe that Christ was the Messiah. And I think that would have helped because I think these priests would have fled also. And they'd have had these small groups. I didn't, I didn't, I'd never noticed that in scripture before. That there was a significant number of priests in Jerusalem who accepted Christ as the Messiah. And so they would have been able to teach and connect all of the things from the Torah. And said, look, this is what it means. And so they're then able to connect it. And when they go into the synagogue and they hear someone reading the word, they can tell them about the Messiah who had come. And so we have this unintended consequence. Paul meant 
to kill the church, and instead it grew. And James meant to encourage people. And I doubt he'd have thought that a couple thousand years later, we'd still be reading his words. But that's what God can do. He can take these simple acts, like trying to help someone prepare for a hard time, and he can redeem it and make it a foundation of our faith. And he can take these hard times, like persecution, and he can redeem it and help the faith grow. God knows all that we've done. He knows our lives from beginning to end. In fact, Paul, at one point in time, he talks about that, um, if I can find the right verse, that from his mother's womb, God had a plan for him. We think of Paul as this great foundation of our faith someone who's written most of the books of the New Testament. But when he looked back on his life, he saw all of that evil as much as we could ever see all of the good. And so he calls himself the chiefest of sinners for a reason. It is how he saw himself. And as you look at all, almost every great example in the Bible, we are shown their flaws. Because God knows that we are full of flaws. And on our best day, we're not good enough. And that is why he died for us. Paul said it very succinctly in Romans 5. He goes, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We did nothing. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve heaven. But God wants us there anyway. And so he took the first step. He stepped into James's life and turned that corner with him. He broke into Paul's life and said, why are you persecuting me? And oddly enough, Paul's eyes were opened while he was blinded. And I feel like if you look at Paul's life, he is regularly in communion with Christ, learning from him directly, learning how to connect all of the things that he had been taught as an up-and-coming Pharisee, and what all of that meant if you saw Christ as the Messiah. And that is why he wrote so much of our scripture, because he was trained in those things, in the places where Peter and James were not. And so he's able to craft, uh, help us craft our faith, understand our theology, And so, in closing, I just want to go back to the original point. God can and will redeem anything and anyone, and that's each of us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. 
grateful that you understand our humanity, the failures of our lives, and they are not disqualifying. That you are willing to step into each of our lives and give us direction. This is an amazing gift. God, as we move on into this week, we pray that you would help us and empower us to speak your words as the moments arise when it is right. That we would console those who are hurting. That we would prepare those who need it. Lord, help us to do your ministry. Well, we are so grateful for this body and for this time together. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a good day.